0: Hello, and welcome to the Unheard documentary podcast. I'm Sally Chatterton, deputy editor of Unheard. Our latest audio documentary is called Taking on China: How the West Can Save Free Trade.
1: In it, Juliet Samuel takes a look at how China is breaking the rules on global trade, and she considers what, if anything, the West can do about
0: it. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to both this and the other unheard Podcasts on your preferred app. A trade war. It's a phrase that conjures up images of the 1930s and the Great Depression. Back then, two thirds of global trade disappeared in just four years, setting the scene for World War II. It seems almost inconceivable that it could happen again. But if Donald Trump has his way, we might be headed right back into another trade war.
2: Brother, can you spare a dime?
0: Recently, more than a thousand economists wrote an open letter warning that he's trying to do just that. The reason? China. China is rising. For the first time in a generation, the geopolitical center of the world is moving east. The US's 30 years as the world's only superpower are ending. China is now the world's biggest manufacturer and its second biggest economy. But China's success has led Trump and others to accuse Beijing of cheating, of rigging the rules of trade to give its businesses an unfair advantage. Having imposed new tariffs on solar panels and steel, Trump's government recently proposed slapping new taxes on 1,300 Chinese products. Beijing responded with a threat to tax 128 US products. It seemed like the first steps on the road to a new trade war. But is there something more to it? Trump's attacks on China might be xenophobic and overdone, and his failure of strategy might mean that he has split the West. But despite the bombast, the truth is that Beijing has real questions to answer. In other words, Trump has a point. China's tariffs are higher than those put up by any other economy of its significance. For years, it manipulated its currency, keeping it artificially low to boost exports. It sends its companies out to buy their foreign rivals, but it won't let our companies in to buy Chinese firms. And its companies stand accused of mass theft of Western technology through corporate espionage in claims that are now being tested in China's courts. China is no longer a small, developing economy. Its economic model is now so dominant in global trade that it raises questions over whether Western capitalist democracies can still compete. And the question, ultimately, is what the West should do about it. First, to understand how quickly and dramatically China and the world have changed, I spoke to Professor Steve Tsang, head of the China Institute at London's School of Oriental and African Studies.
3: If we go back about 40 years or a bit longer, China was not all that different from what North Korea looks like today. Uh, Access to the country was difficult, trade was restrictive, supplies were very short, and people had very, very low living standard. And all this changed after Deng Xiaoping returned to power, in December 1978 and started the reform and opening up.
0: The opening up under Deng Xiaoping transformed China. For the first time, it let foreign companies set up operations and employ its people. And they came in droves, first from Hong Kong and then the West. China's workforce of hundreds of millions prepared to work long hours for little pay was irresistible to many multinational companies. For the workers themselves, life changed completely. 800 million people were lifted out of extreme poverty. 109 million Chinese people have now become middle class.
3: What we have seen in the last 40 years in China was the transformation of an economy and a society like North Korea into something that is genuinely vibrant, exciting and full of opportunities, and now we are seeing China being the second largest economy and the economy that is more dependent on international trade than any other.
0: So now that China has reached this stage where it's the second biggest economy in the world, how are the government's priorities changing? How is it reorienting itself now?
3: The Chinese government is no longer interested in simply keeping China as the factory of the world. The Chinese government is now much more interested in upgrading Chinese industry to become much more technology-intensive and also innovative.
0: A country that aims to be at the cutting edge of technology is very different from one content with being the world's factory. In practical terms, this means that China is spending a lot of money developing new science and technology, overtaking the US to become the biggest filer of patents in the world. This has led to a huge flowering of scientific and technological achievement, pushing China to the forefront in fields like artificial intelligence and biosciences. But it has also found other ways to get hold of new knowledge. It has required many Western companies to share their technology with local Chinese businesses in order to access its massive market. China's government has also ordered its companies to go on a global shopping spree. Chinese companies are buying everything from oil production companies to microchip makers to get their hands on intellectual property. They want to own the resources of the future, ideas, technology and patents. But while Chinese companies can buy their leading Western rivals, its government still won't let Western companies buy their counterparts in China. And there's another problem. Sometimes, a Chinese business decides it doesn't want to pay for technology. Instead, it steals it. The Massachusetts-based company American Superconductor, or AMSC, found this out to its cost. It was back in 2011, and AMSC was riding high. President Barack Obama had singled out the company for praise because it seemed to show just how a Western company could crack the exciting new Asian market, making trade work for both sides. AMSC had partnered with a Chinese state-backed firm called Sinovel. Together, they had become major players in the wind turbine sector. I spoke to AMSC chief executive Daniel McGann over Skype to find out more about how their partnership helped Sinovel.
4: They became the number one in China, they became number two in the world, they became larger than General Electric Wind, they became a, a dominant force globally on the backs of our technology. So as we go forth to the, the late days of the March quarter of 2011, the whole world for us changed.
0: That March, employees were called to a meeting where they heard some disturbing news, Sinovel whose orders then provided three-quarters of AMSC's revenue, had refused to accept a shipment of electronic components. Within weeks, it became clear that Sinovel had obtained the source code for AMSC's components and was installing a pirated version on its wind turbines. How, I asked Daniel, had this happened?
4: They had approached and turned one of our employees, and they used money, they used women, they used... uh, the prospects of a new life, to convert this individual to their side.
0: That individual, Dejan Karabasevich, was a wind technician at AMSC's Austrian business. He had illegally leaked its technology to two Sinovel employees. A 2013 indictment alleged that Sinovel gave Karabasevich a multi-year contract worth $1.7 million to steal his employer's trade secrets. The money essentially doubled his salary. Messages sent over Skype by Karabasevich were presented in court, suggesting he was angry about his treatment by the company and wanted revenge. The theft left to a dramatic downturn at AMSC.
4: We had to lay off of nearly 700 people, so this affects 700 families. At the time, we were just under 1,000 employees. At the time, on the Nasdaq exchange, we traded at about $1.2, $1.3 billion. That market cap was literally cut in half in a day. By the time we're able to work with authorities, by the time we're able to work with governments and file lawsuits, we had lost over a billion dollars in equity value. These are big numbers, lots of jobs lost. And kind of at a fundamental level, this is not just a trade issue. It's not just a rule of law issue. Really the global economy is on trial here.
0: McGann is right. AMSC's case in China will show whether or not the global economic system can ensure that trade works for both sides. For that to happen, each party has to obey the same set of rules. If not, we can hardly expect Western voters to keep faith with free trade. McGann never knew what role, if any, the Chinese government's policy could have played in Sinovel's actions. On paper, China has strong rules guarding intellectual property but many complain that they don't get enforced. AMSC is now pursuing a case against Sinovel in China's courts. The process is lengthy. But if the courts force Sinovel to compensate its American partner for the technology it stole, then there is real hope for the future of free trade. The American government, all Western governments, need to make it clear that if companies can't trust Chinese institutions to enforce their rights, then that is going to cause serious problems for our economic relationship. Cases like AMSCs are already having political repercussions in Washington.
5: The nation of China is responsible for almost half of America's trade deficit. China is not a market economy. They get a lot of help. They haven't played by the rules. And I know it's time that they're going to start. They're going to start, they've got to. We're all in this thing together, folks. We gotta play by the rules, folks. You have the massive theft of intellectual property, putting unfair taxes on our companies, and the at-will and massive devaluation of their currency and product dumping. Other than that, they've been wonderful, right?
0: I spoke to Marco Rubio, Republican senator for Florida and a rival who ran and lost against Donald Trump in his party's
1: presidential primaries. The second thing about the trade war, I don't understand, because your ties and the clothes you make is made in Mexico and in China. So you're going to be starting a trade war against your own ties and your own suits.
0: Back then, trade reform was not a topic that featured prominently on Rubio's platform. But he tells me that since losing to Trump, his view has shifted.
1: Yeah, I think I've grown into a position that more fully appreciates how destabilizing uh, these trends have been. In essence, I still see and celebrate the benefits of trade and of the global economy, but I'm much more sensitive and sympathetic and compassionate towards the pain and the displacement that it's caused. All free trade agreements and all free trade concepts come with a set of rules that, that govern how trade is conducted and for a number of years uh, the advanced economies have allowed the so-called developing economies to cheat on some of those rules under the notion that if uh, they became richer they would become more democratic and then more bought into the global trading system well in the particular case of china that hasn't worked
0: and what are the most serious ways in which china has broken the rules
1: well i don't even know where to begin i mean they obviously uh, don't respect intellectual property They force the transfer of technology. They have massive barriers to entry into their marketplace, but assume all of the benefits of access to the marketplace of the United States and other countries. Um, They steal your technology, they steal your methods, they steal your uh, uh, secrets. And uh, once they can do it as well as you can, they become your competitor and put you out of business.
0: So what should the government do about this?
1: I think we can no longer treat China as some developing country that should be allowed to skip on the rules. And so that needs to be rebalanced. And we intend to begin very shortly with legislation that would prevent, by law, American-based companies from transferring technology that the president deems to be critical to our national security. And ultimately, it's a very simple concept, and that is that their companies doing business in the United States should face the exact same barriers and the exact same restrictions and the exact same requirements that American companies doing business in China do.
0: The US government has started to block Chinese investors from buying American companies and it already blocks Chinese companies from offering certain services. This has protected US technology, but it also means that the cost of some services, like rural broadband, are higher in the US than they are in the UK, where we allow Chinese-owned Huawei to operate. I asked Rubio whether he thinks this will escalate into a full-blown trade war.
1: Potentially, um, uh, I hope not. No one, I think, wins a trade war. But I think the worst case scenario, frankly, is that the White House settles for some sort of symbolic agreement with the Chinese, some you know promise to open their market a little bit, and takes that as a win and pockets it and then walks away, because this is probably our last best chance to rebalance this agreement, this relationship. The one thing I wanted to make clear again is that I would caution everyone that we should not view this whole situation with China is simply about trade. Uh, The geopolitical implications of it are extraordinary. There are two ways forward. One is a proper balance between the West and China in which China continues to grow, but so does the West. And there's a level of uh, balance there that prevents conflict, both economic and and military. And another in which an imbalance develops in which China grows more powerful at the expense of the West and the free nations on Earth. And that, I believe, would lead to conflict and no one wants that. A war between the West and China would be catastrophic. But that is what we are inviting if we allow there to be economic or military imbalance between the West and China.
0: From a trade war to a real war? Is he being hysterical? I'd like to think so, but I'm not so sure. Rubio has his own agenda, of course, and if you spend too long listening to politicians, you could end up fighting 10 wars before breakfast. The fact is, China's investment spree isn't just a threat, it's also an opportunity. To better understand this opportunity, I went to speak to a company that has benefited from it. I've come to King's Langley in Hertfordshire to visit Imagination Technologies, one of Britain's most innovative companies. It designs microchips that process graphics and it licences its intellectual property to some of the world's most famous technology brands. Last October, Imagination was bought by the Chinese-backed private equity fund Canyon Bridge in a deal worth £550 million. I'm here to find out why Imagination put itself up for sale and what its new Chinese ownership means for the future.
2: This is exactly what you'd call buzzing with noise of activity. David Harold, I'm the Vice President of Marketing Communications for Imagination Technologies.
0: And your chips are in most smartphones in the world, is that right?
2: We are in billions and billions of products. I mean, there are more things with our technology in than there are people in the world. Certainly in the smartphone market, we have a very strong position, partly because all iOS devices um, have our graphics technology in to date
0: iOS is the operating system created and developed by Apple. And to date, what Harold is saying is true. Their technology is in every iOS device. But in June last year, Apple, by some distance Imagination's largest customer and a significant shareholder, announced that it would stop using the British company's graphics processors for its future products. The fallout was instantaneous.
4: Some not-so-great news for Imagination Technologies. Earlier this month, Imagination confirmed that Apple was no longer going to use their graphic chips in their iPhone, iPad and iPod products. This announcement sent Imagination stock plummeting 71% in a single day. According to Reuters, citing...
0: The, the blow from report, Apple proved too much. Imagination put itself up for sale. Its employees crossed their fingers and hoped for a buyer who wouldn't just break up the company and take its technology, but who wanted to invest. Luckily for them, a Chinese-backed private equity firm, Canyon Bridge, was on the lookout for an investment. Canyon had just tried to buy an American microchip company, but had been blocked by the US government because of its ties to the Chinese government. So Canyon came to Britain. For imagination, the investment was a godsend.
2: We always talked about wanting to stay an independent IP company and, you know, We've turned down offers to buy the company historically because, you know, that's what we wanted to be. Canyon Bridge allowed us to do that. So our strategy continues. You know, we're an independent IP supplier creating new technologies, supplying it to a wide range of customers. Um, I think that was the best outcome. And it was the outcome we were looking for. But, you know, that all of those other kinds of deals were on the table in one way or another. I think we were lucky that we managed to get the right value and, and the right strategy through being sold to Canyon Bridge.
0: And how committed are they, do you think, to doing this in the UK? Because one worry is that they buy the company here and then long term, it all moves to China.
2: So the Chinese government have said, look, you know, we import more electronics than anything else that has to change. We need to create chips at home, have our own technology companies. and. That's great. There's a huge amount of money, particularly government money, uh, running around China right now. You know, making this happen. But what China doesn't have, and what it knows it doesn't have, is you know the the, the sorts of companies that create you know these ground-up new technologies. So it's not you know about some sort of long-term technology transfer. It's about access to the right kind of partners to enable China to grow the businesses it wants to grow, which are fundamentally chip businesses. You know, they, they want to make something that goes into your phone. They're looking for who's going to enable that.
0: So how do you respond to people who have concerns, who say, we don't know where this technology is going to end up? Do we want it to be owned by Chinese investors?
2: there is nothing in the electronics world that isn't touched by china at some point if you buy you know a tv from a big japanese brand and you go oh, i'm buying you know this uh, japanese tv it's made in china if you buy your german car and you drive it home you go i've got my german car you know open it up it's full of things that came from china you know it's a prejudice fundamentally to say that you know these risks are profound things have changed Really profoundly, you know. Uh, when we started in this market, we did business in places like Japan or Taiwan because they were perceived as safe in a way that China wasn't. But that's changed entirely. You know, Chinese companies have become worldwide focused. They want to sell overseas. They have become extremely respectful of IP rights. It's almost like you're looking at uh, uh, China of 20 years ago and saying, well, you know, your technology's at risk there. Or, no, it's not. China today is not like that.
0: That's a very different opinion from the one we heard earlier expressed by AMSC. It's fair to say that in London, the world looks very different from how it does in Washington. Here, hopes are high that the next stage of China's development will see a boom in its demand for services in which Britain specialises, like consumer goods, finance and education. David Willits was an MP for over 20 years with a variety of briefs, including a stint as Minister of State for Universities and Science up to 2014. Today he is chairman of Eight Great Technologies. A specialist technology venture capital fund that is focused on investing Chinese money into British startups.
6: Our plan is that those British tech companies that want a, a soft landing in China would be naturals for an Anglo Chinese partnership in tech investment, and that's what we're putting together.
0: The fund has £120 million committed and is hoping to raise a further £600 million all for the purpose of buying British technology companies and helping them crack the Chinese market. But is Britain selling off its crown jewels? There are, of
6: course, some people who are sceptical about all this. They say, can you trust the intellectual property that you've built up in the UK if you take an entity to China? Will you simply be ripped off? Um, And of course, I understand those fears. And there are some companies that may not wish to do it. However, the fact is, China is a massive market. They are very substantially improving their protections for intellectual property because they know they won't get advanced R&D partners unless they do, and increasingly, there are domestic pressures within China for people who've done R&D to have it protected. So IP protection is getting a lot better. Um, and of course, we're also aiming to provide a continuing flow of new tech companies. And so it's in no one's interest to have a bad experience, which deters other companies from coming. So. I think we can make it work, but obviously we're going into it with our eyes open.
0: Willits is right that in all the discussion of trade rules and tariffs, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that China is making enormous intellectual contributions to human knowledge. Its progress might even be aided by uncomfortable facts. Its artificial intelligence research isn't constrained by concerns for data privacy, and its genetic research isn't constrained by religious ethics. This might not be the way we want to organise our societies in the West, but there's no denying that many of the important advances of the future will come from China. When that happens, it may well be China who starts fighting to protect intellectual property. We
6: certainly are operating under an overall umbrella where the Chinese government has made it clear that it wants partnerships in science and tech and commercialization with leading Western countries. So it does undoubtedly tie in with a wider strategy of the Chinese government. But we're also doing it because it ties in with what we see as the UK's interests. And the fact is that as companies in Britain grow, they do look for overseas investment. There's very lively American interest in our technologies. Companies like Google turn up with a massive checkbook and can buy large numbers of British tech companies. And I think it's actually in the interests of British tech entrepreneurs that as well as American interest, there's also Chinese interest.
0: What about the issue of reciprocity generally, that Chinese companies can come here and buy a lot of high-tech companies that British investors cannot buy in China?
6: There is an issue of reciprocity across all kind of trade negotiations and all these types of deals. And look, I wish China were a, a more open economy. But... It's very hard in the real world to say one won't do anything until there's complete reciprocity. That would just be a chilling, have a chilling effect, which meant not much happened for ages. And let's be clear, although there are undoubtedly issues with China, they are not unique. American companies are able to buy in the UK. When I know of examples of British companies that wanted to buy in the US, and found there were a variety of hidden or not so hidden protections.
0: The US doesn't have a perfect record on trade, and it's highly protectionist in certain areas. But I think China's protectionism and rule-breaking is of a different scale. Willits thinks we need to stay open to both sides, and I have a lot of sympathy with that view. Britain has been a defender of free trade for much of its history, and not simply because of principles, but because it's been in our interests, especially when we were an ascendant global power. The view that staying open is good for you is held by most major economists who say that closing off your economy doesn't help. Staying open lowers prices for consumers and benefits you even if your trading partners aren't giving you reciprocal market access. At least that's the view held by economic commentators like Martin Wolf.
7: Reciprocity is not an economic principle. So the argument for... Uh, strictly reciprocal trade policy, they should have the same trade policies as you, is not an economically logical position, but it's a politically very logical position because people can look at this, since they don't really understand comparative advantage, they say to themselves, well, if we are more open than they are, somehow we're shooting ourselves in the foot.
0: But as Wolf recognises, trade policy isn't just about economic theories. It's also about fairness. Who wins and who loses. In other words, it's also about politics.
7: China has developed a great deal. It's still relatively poor, but it's a very, very big country. But it's so big, so competitive that this is no longer a reasonable bargain. And therefore, in your interest and in our interest, you should liberalise. It's no longer politically sustainable in our countries to give you the treatment we agreed to more than 20 years ago now. And therefore, we have to redo this bargain.
0: Trump's election suggests that all is not right in Western politics. Of course, in reality, most of the changes that have pushed people out of factory jobs in America have been caused by automation and technological advances. In that sense, Trump is using China as a scapegoat for the US's failure to prepare its population. Kate Bell is an economist for the UK Trade Union Congress. I think you've got a really interesting political moment moment where you're starting to see people across the political spectrum realising that there are too many communities, many of them affected by the loss of manufacturing jobs, who've been left behind. They've been left without decent jobs, they've been left without decent pay, and they've really been left without a sense that, you know, anyone is actually sticking up for them. The West is still working out how to cope with the great industrial displacement of the last 40 years. But China's scale means that we can't simply ignore its impact on the terms of trade. We do know that China and the kind of rise of kind of globalization and global markets and outsourcing has had an impact. But most of all, I think we actually need to look at the role of our own government. So, for a long time, um, kind of industrial strategy, now probably very much in vogue, was pretty much a dirty word. So, we didn't have that government strategy saying, how can we develop our manufacturing industry? What's the UK going to be good at? And how can we support that? And hopefully, we're at the start of a kind of turnaround in that approach. What Bell is suggesting risks entering into a subsidy arms race with China, where we try to shovel more cash at our industries than Beijing can spend on its own. That's a battle we wouldn't win. But China does raise a fundamental challenge to our economic model. Clyde Prestowitz is a Labour economist who was US Secretary of Commerce under President Ronald Reagan.
5: China is, uh, it seems, aiming to develop a different model from the U.S. or the Western democratic model. And China indicates that it not only wants that model for itself, but it wants to demonstrate that that model is superior to the American or liberal Western model. Behind all this economics, there is a competition for power. And so if you're engaged in a competition for power, you know, then um, there is the danger of dangerous things happening.
0: So would you support a broader policy of tariffs to protect the American economy?
5: When you say tariffs, um, you know I don't see that, I don't see any need for the US, for example, to have tariffs against or, or on, uh, imports of goods from and services from the EU or from the UK or Canada or other truly free-trading nations. And what I think Trump is trying to do is to use the threat of tariffs to induce the Chinese uh, toward a more free-trade model. And uh, I, I largely support that.
0: This is a very different vision of Trump's agenda. In the view of Prestowitz and others like him, the US government isn't trying to start a trade war. It's trying to use measures like investment blocks and tariffs to increase its bargaining power. It's using the threat of protectionism to try and achieve more free trade. I asked Prestowitz if Trump's strategy will really persuade China to change.
5: It is hard to persuade countries to change what they're doing. And I think particularly hard in the case of China, which is not a democratic country and does not have a rule of law. But China has signed agreements. Uh, It is a member of the WTO. Uh, It's negotiating other free trade agreements. And so it should be possible uh, to ensure that China plays by the rules that it signed up for. If we can't expect that, then there's really no sense in having these global
3: institutions.
0: I also asked Professor Tsang of SOAS's China Institute whether taking a tough line with China would work.
3: The Chinese government would not want to do that if they could avoid it. But if we insist and if we persist and if they realise that they do not actually uh, treat us on an equal and reciprocal basis, then there will be prices to pay in terms of companies simply walking away and investments not being made, partnerships not being formed, then they will have to consider whether they would uh, want that as a future. The Chinese Communist Party requires a very strong, growing economy for each to maintain its legitimacy. So if the Chinese economy significantly slows down because it refuses to treat us on an equal and reciprocal basis, then the party will have to think hard about it.
0: This made me think that it's too soon to start talking about an apocalyptic return to the 30s. If Tsang and Prestowitz are right that China can be persuaded to change, then perhaps Trump isn't as crazy as he looks. China is opening up, but the signal sent by its trading partners could make a big difference as to how quickly that happens and whether companies like AMSC can protect their property rights. If the genuine strategic aim of Trump's policy is to achieve fairer terms of trade, rather than simply undermining trade because he prefers nationalism, then it's an aim I strongly endorse. However, his reckless style has muddied the waters. US trading partners like the EU and Japan have been caught up in a fight in which they should be natural US allies. A much better strategy would be to build a global alliance between capitalist democratic countries and then have all of them collectively go to China and argue the case for change. This would combine Trump's strongman rhetoric with Barack Obama's shrewd programme of regional trade deals. Unfortunately, Trump seems to think, wrongly, that trade is a so-called zero-sum game in which someone has to lose each time another gains. We are at the start of a new geopolitical era, and Trump's trade fight is the first real attempt to grapple with its implications. The question before us is who sets the rules of trade, and whose economic model should they most closely reflect? China can reasonably argue that it ought to have a role in setting the rules, and that our international institutions do not currently reflect its significance. But if China is big enough to claim a role in setting the rules, it is also big enough to be held accountable for breaking them. We cannot simply accept a new normal in which we, the West, obey a certain set of rules while China ignores them. When I began making this documentary, I thought that Trump was a dangerous man hell-bent on taking us back to 30s protectionism and reviving dead American industries that are no longer competitive. But now, I think his confrontational rhetoric could be part of a strategy that brings China to the table. And after years of applying diplomatic pressure and conducting behind-the-scenes negotiations, we need to admit that it is time to talk and act tougher. If it helps to achieve more free trade in the end, it's worth it.